before we do anything, shall we pray? Dear Lord, we thank you for the time that we have together. Thank you for your word and for what it um, reveals about you and what it reveals about us. Uh, Lord, we just pray that um, you would speak. We would want to listen to you and only you, not the words of some guy who just did a bunch of reading. But Lord, would you please speak? Um, because we need to hear you, especially in a topic like this. Um, please don't let me say anything that would be wrong or counter you or counter your character. Um, Jesus, and I pray. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> so t- today, uh, it kind of feels weird talking to you about this, but um, today we, we are um, uh, doing the part two of the... Sorry. We're doing part two of the um, Old Testament and New Testament uh, look together. So uh, this week we're going to look at God's judgment. Um, it's I was hoping to like put it all in one thing, but it's too big of a topic. So this is part one of I don't know how how many of this particular thing we're going to get through. I'll, I'll spoiler. We're going to get through um, the 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 judgment in the Garden of Eden. We're going to get through the flood and we're going to get through the exodus. <clears throat> so we're going to cover those three things today, hopefully. Um, and it's going to be plenty. Um, and we'll see how we can wrap it up. But for those of you who weren't here last week or for those of you who forgot, um, what we, why we're doing this is because a lot of people look at the Bible, especially look at the Old Testament and say, what's the point? What is it? that's here for me to gain. You know, surely Jesus is all I really need to care about. Um, and in fact, a lot of people will look at the Old Testament and then the New Testament will be like, this God is not consistent. This God doesn't make sense. On one page in the beginning of the Bible, he's talking about killing people. And then on this other page, he's supposedly dying for everyone. So what, what is this guy all about? What is this? Who is this God and how is this consistent? So this whole thing is to... Um, kind of explore the Bible as a whole um, and to compare a few key themes um, and messages that I think the Bible wants to kind of share about itself um, and and compare it Old Testament, New Testament. Obviously today we're just going to be looking at the Old Testament um, because of how much there is, but the plan would be uh, to use this as a launching point and then compare it with the next next one. Um, So today we're talking about judgment. So this is like the big one. This is the one I've been worried about to talk about for many, many long times, uh, long, long months and years. And and it's been something I've struggled with. It's been kind of one of the key things that a lot of people have asked me specifically about, um, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you say that the God in the Old Testament who wiped out the whole of humanity with a flood is the same God that uh, died on the cross? Um, how do you how do you how do you kind of um, uh, summarize that or, or put it together or, or, or like how does it make sense? And um, I hope that you will see what I've been seeing um, along this journey, kind of reading the Bible. But before we get into the passages that we're going to look at, um, I just want to say one thing, or actually a couple things. First is that. Um, Judgment, when we think about judgment, we think about it from the perspective of a judge, right? It's in the name, uh, you know, you're on the witness, or you're the defendant, and there's a judge, and you've committed a crime, and the judge, it's his job 
he done, you know, he's just there clocking in nine to five and, and getting out of there and, and he's passing judgment based off of maybe a set of rules that he's got or whatever else. And that's, that's the deal, right? That's the thing that comes to our mind. The um, uh, character of God um, is not portrayed this way. The character of God is not so much a judge who's standing uh, there waiting for you to do wrong and then pick you up on your infractions and give you a fine or whatever else or cast like a sentence on you. No, the God of the Bible is actually more in line with a father who is watching his children make big mistakes and then punishing them to correct them. Um, So everything that we read and we explore just right up front that's the lens that the Bible wants you to view God as. Um, and the other thing is that judgment is perceived, like I can say a whole bunch of stuff from here and you won't hear any of it unless we get something straight. And that is identity. Uh, who God is to you and who you are, right? There is no one on this planet who will ever look at God as just a just judge a just good god if they think that they themselves are perfect um and uh the the same same the opposite way around you will have a skewed perspective if you have a skewed perspective on god then you're never going to really allow yourself to see the truth that the bible is trying to to declare about god so does that make sense so identity who you are who god is as well as the fact that the way that the Bible tries to portray God is not as this nine to five judge clocking in, clocking out, making sure you don't, you know, break the rules or else he'll fine you, but rather as a father who is watching out for his kids and trying to correct them when he sees them uh, making mistakes. Yeah. Okay. So with all that said, let's look at the beginning where it all begins. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at. So last week we talked about God's commands. Well, pull up Genesis chapter 3 while, while I'll give you this. So last week we talked about um, uh, the, the commands of God. And we looked at the very first commands of God, which was number one. Does anyone remember? We looked at the command. The first command is eat of every tree. Enjoy yourself. I made all of this for you. Paradise, Eden, all of these trees, the tree of life, etc. All of this stuff is for you. Eat of it. And then the second command comes right after it. And it is, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we looked at how taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a rejection of what God calls good. It's a rejection of what God declares is right for us and instead is choosing to redefine good and evil based on our terms and is an ultimate rebellion and a, and a break um, of uh, relationship as well as death spiritually, relationally, physically, eventually. Um, and, and it wreaks havoc on, on us and our world. And God commands us to essentially choose life, don't choose death, right? So we know how the story goes. We know Adam and Eve did not choose to obey and so this is the judgment that comes right after it and it's in genesis chapter 3 verses 8 read it with me like if you got your bibles read it with me because uh it's helpful to follow on follow along okay so genesis chapter 3 beginning from verse 8 it says this 
So Adam and Eve have just, have just eaten from the tree. They've realized they're naked. They've co- covered themselves up with uh, some fig leaves. And then we read this, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. We'll just pause there. So, okay, they've just broken the command, right? They've just broken the rules and they're doing something that's pretty like instinctive to human beings. It's, you can picture that you, if I gave you this exact same scenario, but it was with a cookie jar and it was with a two-year-old and the parents said, don't eat from the cookie jar before dinner. You know, you've had your dinner. You would ima- and then all of a sudden there's crumbs everywhere and, and then the mom sees it. And the mom, the, the mom or dad, the parent doesn't have to, like, they know what happened, right? They don't know what happened. There's no mystery here. It doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to figure out what, what went down. And yet the child isn't around. And in this situation, this is exactly the, the, the setting. And God chooses to play the parent. God chooses to play the one who's in relationship. He chooses to say, uh, where are you? He doesn't say, oh, here we go. You've done it already or whatever, or time for the pain or like anything like that. What he says is, where are you? He's inviting them to step in. He's inviting them to draw near. He's inviting them to maybe repent, maybe ask for forgiveness, maybe own up to their mistake. Um, But they're hiding. They're hiding because they know what they did is wrong automatically and they're ashamed the, the the whole thing about nakedness here is not about oh I'm, I'm embarrassed no no the whole thing about nakedness here is that they see themselves for who they are they see their they're wrong they see that uh that they are exposed that god can see directly right through them and at them and they just want some relief from that they want to cover up they just don't want to be seen by god because seeing by god while you're guilty is torture is pain um, and so that's what they're doing. And, uh, and, and God, um, uh, he, he says, who told you you're naked? And then he says this in verse 11, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. All right. Now we transition from hiding and being ashamed to the blame game and denial. Again, a very human like. Every one of us. Uh, think back to the last time you were in the wrong for something. Can you relate to this? We all can. Um, I hope this is something that we grow out of, especially as people who claim to be followers of Jesus. I hope that this is something that we, does not become a pattern for us. But this is certainly what's going on with Adam and Eve right now, the blame game. And the, the, the really remarkable and like outrageous thing that Adam is doing here is he, he doesn't just blame Eve, but he blames God. He says, you gave me her. It's your fault. You gave her to me. And she's the one who stuffed me up, who made me make the wrong decision. And then, but now, you know, as a parent, I feel like, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens when I am a parent. But as a parent, I feel like if my kid's in the middle of making excuses or whatever else, I just want to shut them down and say, no, I see the cookie jar. It wasn't the dog. It wasn't the cat. It wasn't your brother. It wasn't your sister. It's you, you little liar. Get out here. Let me give you a smack. 
and uh, then Department of Human Services would be on my case. Um, but God does not do this. In fact, he lets them, he lets them speak to him. He lets them say what they want to say. He gives them dignity and space, even though what they're saying is wrong. He gives them the dignity and space to communicate with him. And so uh, then Eve says, um, uh, the, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then God does not let the serpent have a chat. Because you see, the story here, God knows what's going on. God, again, the cookie jar, like, it's, it's clear. He knows what happened. He's aware of everything. He's aware of the conversation that happened with this being, this evil being, the serpent, that we will later call Satan. Um, and he's aware of, of what happened with them and their hearts and, and all of that stuff. So he knows. So he doesn't let the serpent have a chance to do anything or say anything because he is the guilty one. And so he goes on and he starts to now dole out the judgment. Okay, so, so far this story is not just about judgment, right? Do you see that? This story is about how we come before God and how God chooses to come before us, even in our sin, even in our wrong. Yeah, and how we choose to either own up, which Adam and Eve don't do here, and communicate and confess, or how we choose to hide um, and deny and, and, and convict others and just try to get out of it in whatever way we can. Um, but how God chooses to engage with us in that whole situation. And um, uh, I could, we, could, we could literally, like, we could spend 45 minutes just on this, all right? But we're not going to. So I'm going to stream past a little bit um, these judgments, but we're going to make a few little, um, uh, like, we're going we're gonna to highlight some things. So in verse 14, he, God immediately speaks to the serpent and says, Because you've done this, curse to you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right. So the serpent, who is the only one without excuse here, the one that is uh, the enactor of evil and the enactor of rebellion, the one who has absolutely nothing but malice uh, in its heart, the one who is in absolute rebellion before God. Uh, God says to this being, this creature, it says, you will be cursed forever. It says, you will crawl on your dust, you will be despised, you will be looked down upon, and you will be in constant defeat. And then he says, but one day, there will be a day where the seed of the woman, the one that you tripped up, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, will come, and he shall crush your head, he will bruise your head, and you will also deal a, a bruise, a crush to his heel. But this will be your end. This will be your end. This is the first prophecy the first uh, uh, gospel message of Jesus. This is the first sign of Jesus. It's on the third page of your Bible. All right? um, uh, and God here is saying that for absolute evil, well, he's saying many things on many different levels, um, but on one fundamental level, he's saying with absolute evil, it will be destroyed. With absolute evil, it will always be looked down on. It will always be despised. It will always be cursed and it will, it will eventually be defeated. Right. Um, there, there are other layers to that as well, but, but we'll leave that one there. Then let's have a look at what he says to the woman. Verse 16. To the woman, to Eve, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. 
in pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desires shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Or in some translation it says, your desires shall be towards your husband, for your husband, and he will rule over you. All right. <laughs> so, it's very, like, again, we could spend 45 minutes on this. But the situation here is this. The woman, the one who God gave the gift of being a mother, for, and particularly this woman, the woman that would be the mother to all of, of humanity. Um, he says to her, the, the gift that I gave you and the, the mandate, you remember how we talked about last week, the mandate of humanity was to be fruitful and to multiply, right? The mandate that I've given you, this, this thing that was a blessing, this thing that was a good thing, it now will be something that's hard and painful because of what you've done because of your disobedience, because of your rejection of what I've called good, the good thing that I gave you, you've rejected good. And so it will be turned into a source of pain and suffering. That's one way to look at it. I'm not, we're not going to go through all the different ways to look at it, but that's the way I choose to look at it today. I think that's what the author is trying to give us as well. Um, and then he says, God says that... Through this act of rebellion, through this act of redefining what's good, what's bad, and, and choosing your way and not my way, through this, your relationship with your partner, the one who I created, uh, you who I created for him to be rib, side by side, rib, rib from rib, um, and, and to be, you know, to be inseparable and to be, you know, the authors of life in this world. You know, I'm the author of all life and you will be the authors of, of humanity in this world. This person, this person will be a source of tension and struggling. This person uh, who is supposed to be your partner and, and, and kind of, you know, the glue between you two is supposed to be like you were never supposed to be separate. This person, there will be a power struggle, power dynamic. If you want to hear people talk about the Bible from the point of view of like saying that, Men should be, you know, over women and all this kind of stuff. This is one key passage to kind of highlight and to say, no, like this was a, a, a result of the fall, a result of the fall, a result of disobedience and, and, uh, and rebellion to God is actually the breaking of relationship between man and woman is actually the friction behind man and woman. If we would just choose to submit to God, there's no tension anymore between men and women. There's no tension anymore in relationship because you're mutually submitted to the will of God. And he is only about love and goodness for both of you, right? So, so that's, that's what's going on here. Lots of people can look at these commands and say, God here is designating punishment. And that is one way you could look at it, that God is designating punishment. But another way you could look at this, and, and I think in some phrasing here you can really see it, is that God is actually describing consequence. Um, the consequence of rebellion, the consequence of disobedience to the author of life and the author of your relationship is death, relationally, physically, and broken relationship and struggle, right? And uh, we see that, again, in what he says to Adam in verse, eight, uh, verse 17. To Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife. And he's not saying here, you shouldn't have listened to your wife. 
what he says is because you've listened to the voice of your wife um, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. In other words, because you listen to someone else over me, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's a situation where God actually says, because of your decision and because of who you chose to listen to, and it wasn't me, the author of life, you have brought death to everything. The very ground that I've instilled to, to literally bring up life, Seed goes in and life comes out. And with ease, uh, this very ground, uh, you've brought death to it. Um, It it hasn't just been a death for you guys. It's been a death that's polluted everything. Um, And uh, the labor that Adam was supposed to have in this garden, a labor of just like... He was he was the garden he was the gardener of the garden of Eden like he could do whatever he wanted he could taste whatever he wanted he could we would all give uh, like we would give unend- like if you were to tell anyone you could be in paradise with no death disease suffering and you could literally whatever you thought of whatever you wanted to do you could do and the world and nature would not rebel against you like if I wanted to just go outside one day and plant a thing and a, I would know it would happen. It's, I wouldn't have to struggle. or anything. This man who was given literally unending possibilities because of his rebellion, because of rejecting God's goodness and, and the goodness that he instilled in the world around him, God says that your labor now will lead to death, that your labor that was supposed to lead to life and abundance is now going to lead to struggle and little and to death, ultimately, because you, I took you out of the ground and because you've chosen to reject me, you're going back to the ground. So prescriptive judgment, you know, I'm going to prescribe this on you. I'm going to dole this out on you. This is your sentence versus a, just a description of the consequence of what it looks like to rebel against God, what it looks like to distance yourself from his will and his way. What do you guys think of that? Hmm? I don't know. A lot of people might disagree and we can have that conversation afterwards. In fact, I would welcome that conversation afterwards. But, um, but yeah, the, the whole thing here is that this story, I think, is supposed to show us a few key things. And one of them is that God invites us, invites us to trust him, invites us to when we screw up to repent and to come back and to draw near. Um, that he gives us dignity in our shame, even though we might dig a deeper hole for ourselves in the midst of that. But he still, he still allows us to have dignity. And then he goes straight to the heart of the issue and he tells us the consequences. And he does not sugarcoat it. And he does not, uh, he will not allow us to, just like a parent who their child is just hell-bent on touching the stove. I see that pretty flame. That pretty flame is there. And I just want to go towards that. No, no, don't. No, you're going to hurt yourself. No, no, no. The kid won't listen. The kid is drawn to it. That kid will feel pain. The kid will feel this, the consequences of their actions. The parent will draw near to them. The parent will try to make it right, will try to bandage it up. But, but the mark remains. And God, even in his infinite whatever, wisdom and, and capacity and power, God will 
let us experience the consequences. And it's for a hope. It's for a hope. And we're going to have a look at the hope in a second. It's for a hope that we will not do it again. It's for a hope. Look at how bad it is. Like, don't. And out of all of the suffering and out of all of the the consequence and all of the, the shame and the difficulty, we get this really interesting footnote to this story. And it's in verse... Um, 22 uh, oh, uh, God what God does is he covers them he, he, he grabs an animal sacrifices it uh, uses the skin of the animal to clothe them um, a picture of again what Jesus will, will do for us um, and then uh, in verse 22 the Lord God said behold humanity has become like one of us in knowing good and evil now lest they reach out their hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Surely, surely a fix to death, you know, the consequences of what's going on here, the death that Adam and Eve have brought on themselves, surely a fix to their death will be to just let them eat from the tree of life. It's an antidote, right? But no. In fact, that would be poisoning the whole water supply. Because you see, to allow them to remain in the state, and this is something that many theologians have talked about and explored in in many, many, many years. But to allow Adam and Eve to remain in this state of brokenness, in this state of disconnection, and this state of death, um, to allow them to live forever in that state uh, would, would be to essentially have them in hell. It would be hell. Earth would be hell. Their life would be hell. So God limits their life, limits the destructive capacity of their decision to just a mortal life and is choosing to work in the midst of it for the sake of good. And again, he's got a plan. We've already heard about the crushing of the snake and all that kind of stuff. Like It's already there. Yeah. How are you feeling about that? Okay. All right. Okay. So that's our first story. Um, so, yeah. So God is working to be our father, to be someone who kind of, kind of explains the consequences of our decision. will not uh, remove that from us because we need to know, um, but also um, we'll choose to work for good even out of all of that. Um, and we need to learn to trust him despite all of that. And guess what? Adam and Eve do learn to trust him. Um, uh, by the end of their lives. They do learn to surrender to him. So the next uh, big judgment that we're going to look at is the mother of all judgments, uh, the one that everyone kind of talks about and the one that kind of is very difficult. So let's have a look at it, the flood. So Genesis chapter 6. So this story actually spans Genesis chapter 6 all the way down to Genesis chapter 9. We are just going to grab snippets of the story, um, and we're going to explore it with those snippets. Okay? You all right? Yeah? Okay. If you want me to stop earlier, we can, because uh, we can, like, we're going to already do multiple parts to this, and those parts are going to be split up over even... Anyway, so, um, so yeah, if you want me to stop, tell me to stop. All right, Genesis chapter 6, let's have a look. All right. So, uh, yeah, so the fall of man in Genesis 3... Um, just gets worse. It just gets worse. 
every generation that comes along just is worse and worse and worse, scummier and scummier and scummier. Uh, literally, this, so, okay, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Uh, literally, their children are going to commit the first murders. You'd think it would take a few generations to like, you know, be like, oh, you know what? I'll kill you or whatever. But no, no, literally the children of Adam and Eve decide to kill each other. Well, one of them decides to kill. So, and then the child of Cain decides to brag about killing hundreds of people. So it just exponentially gets worse until we reach Genesis chapter six. And this is what God says in verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Like, let that sink in. It's not that like, uh, they've just got some bad thoughts here and there, and they're like, you know, they're just struggling a little bit and whatever. No, no, every thought continually is just evil. Um, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. When we look at the flood, we're tempted to think that God was angry, that God was annoyed, that God was jealous, maybe, that God was afraid, that, I don't know, something like that. But you know what motivates the flood? You know what motivates this judgment? It's grief. It's sorrow. It's an, a deep pit of regret of what has become of his creation. Um, and so... In verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, it's really hard to read verse uh, 7, right? It's really hard to read verse 7. It's really hard to, to read that God looks at everyone and is like, you know what? Wipe the slate clean, get rid of everything and everyone, done. But I got, a, I got a hard truth to tell you guys. And that is that God does not owe you your life. God does not owe any of us our lives. Um, God, from the beginning, when Adam and Eve stuffed up, uh, God did not owe them to allow to continue to live after they left Eden. Uh, God did not, does, still does not owe anything to any of us. Everything that we get and that these people have gotten for generations, and there have been thousands of years of human beings at this point, these people, uh, they have accumulated, accumulated their guilt. And God has, has, has been very patient up until now. And they've just heaped on guilt after guilt after guilt in the way that they've dealt with each other and dealt with um, the creation. And God just looks at them and is like, I can't bear it anymore. I can't. And the fact that he bore it at all, the fact that he bore it at all is amazing. And so he looks at them and he says, I can't bear it. I can't stand it. And he doesn't owe us anything. But you know what? Verse 8 comes right after verse 7. And that is that he looks at this guy called Noah and he says, this guy, I have favor on him. And verse 9 goes on to tell us that he's a righteous man, um, that he did good in the eyes of the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Don't confuse Noah as a saint. In fact, the Bible will be quick to tell us about how Noah is screwed up and how his children are screwed up. But... In a world of screwed up people, God looks at one guy and it's like, I can work with this guy. He's got a heart that's not completely corrupt. He's got a heart that's not completely like just thinking about evil day and night and like perpetually, uh, you know, creating this cycle to turn over and over and over. 
And he says, I'm going to take favor. I choose to take favor on him. Noah did not deserve it. There is nothing at this point that says that Noah deserves God's favor. Um, God just chooses to take favor on him. And out of this favor, what happens in Genesis chapter 7, uh, verses 11 to 23, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, the flood came. And what does God tell Noah in, in the previous chapter? He says, you create an ark, you, your family, and two of every animal uh, of their kind pack into the ark. I'm going to save a remnant. You know, this world, it does need to be wiped clean. This world, I cannot bear its evil and the way that it is just continuously on this downward degradating kind of slope. Um, but I don't want to close the book completely on you, on, on this planet, on humanity, on, you know. And so he says, you guys, you, your family, I will save you guys. Now, he didn't, ha- it could have been just Noah and his wife. Could have just been Noah himself. God's created human beings out of the dust before. Uh, he could have even just said, all right, uh, you know, just the animals and then made a brand new set of humans or something like that. You know, he didn't have to do it. But he says, no, you, your family, these animals, you're going to be the people. You're going to be the ones. And so in the 600th year of Noah's life, uh, the flood comes. And have a listen to the way that um, we hear about the flood. In verse uh, 11 onwards, uh, the, uh, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. The windows of the heavens were opened. The rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Um, and then we'll skip forward to uh, verse uh, six, uh, verse uh, 17 the flood continued 40 days on the earth the waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered the waters prevailed above the mountains covering them 15 cubits deep and all fish died and moved on the earth birds livestock beasts all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth all mankind everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven they were blotted out from the earth only noah was left and those who were with him in the ark did you catch what was going on in that description of the flood Yes, the nostrils thing. So the nostrils thing is mentioned. You know why it's mentioned? Because it's exactly what was mentioned in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. What we see here is literally an undoing of creation. The expanse between the waters and the heavens don't get expanded. The waters raise all the way up. The dry ground that was separated from the waters in the earth, they are no longer separated. It's just completely consumed. The, uh, the, 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 the order that God brings out of the chaos, the chaos returns and floods back. The very ground shatters and splits apart. The heavens shatter and open up with water. Um, and every single living being, and it lists them in the same way that it lists them in Genesis chapter 1, every living being is snuffed out. God uh, hides his face. This is what it looks like when God withdraws. This is what it looks like when God chooses to pull his presence from creation. It looks like decreation. It looks like chaos. 
taking over. It looks like what it looked like before he was there in the first place in the beginning. Um, and uh, it's very intentional. You know why it's intentional? Because the very next thing we read in Genesis chapter 8, verses 1, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. All of a sudden, God shows up on the scene again. You know what happens when God shows up on the scene? Verse 1, And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained. When God shows up on the scene, order comes back. Relief. The chaos withdraws. Life gradually starts to return over the course of a few hundred days or so. So this, what's this trying to tell us? What's this trying to tell us about God's judgment? It's trying to tell us a few things. It's trying to tell us that God will not bear and put up with evil. He won't. He will not. Um, If you sit here today and think that the story of Jesus is somehow something different to that, that the story of Jesus is God saying, it's okay, I'll forgive you no matter. No. Uh, And as we'll get to eventually, the story of Jesus is the opposite. The story of Jesus is the extreme lengths that God will go to to deal with evil, but still not destroy us along with it. Right? Um, But, so God will not put up with evil at all. Um, But what God will also do is that he will choose, he will choose to take mercy on people. And he will choose to do that for the sake of his love and his mercy and his goodness, but also for the sake of his creation and and his creative intent. And it also tells us that God withdrawing himself from us is punishment. It's punishment. It's judgment. God withdrawing himself from our lives and from our circumstances is a form. Well, it's death. The author of life leaving us is death. And that's what the flood is. The flood is God leaving the earth and uh, death sweeping through. But it will not last forever. That's the other thing that we read this story. And in fact, um, as soon as uh, Noah gets out of the ark um, and, and the, everything kind of recedes, and what's the first thing that Noah does? He builds an altar. And what, uh, this is the first altar in the Bible. And what does he do on that altar? He sacrifices some of these animals. Now, you know, like, what the heck, bro? You've got endangered species left and right. Like, everything around you is pretty much this close to extinction. And yet, uh, Noah, Noah, this is when God looks at Noah and he has favor on him. Uh, this is why. This is who Noah is. Noah looks at his surroundings, looks at what God has just done. And instead of choosing to, I don't know, maybe resent God, maybe... Be like, well, okay, I'm going to like, you know, take care of these animals and like they're too precious to sacrifice or whatever. What Noah chooses to do instead is he chooses to say, God, you're sovereign and um, I worship you. Like this was an act of worship. Um, And God is pleased with this act of worship and it drives God to say this in verse uh, 21. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In other words, okay, you know, this is the situation. Humanity is not going to change. She's not 
God knows exactly what's coming up next. And yet, regardless, I will not do this again. This was the only time. But these aren't just words. And these aren't just a thing that he's like deciding now. What he's actually doing, and, and we'll see in the next chapter, what he's actually doing is he's drawing a line in the sand. A line in the sand and he's about to teach Noah and his sons how to try to never come close to this again. And this is what happens in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same mandate, the same blessed mandate that he gives to Adam and Eve. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea into your hands. They are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Because up until now, God had actually commanded Adam and Eve and and people before the flood to just eat the plants uh, and the the trees. But now God is saying, the the animals now you can can partake. But I'm going to try to protect them a little bit. They will be afraid of you. They will run from you as soon as they see you. So that's defense mechanism. Um, And then he says this, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, and I will require it from every man. Uh, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For whoever sheds the blood, uh, the blood of man by man shall, be, uh, shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In other words, this evil, this violence, this destructive path that humanity was on uh, that led to this flood, that led to me just not being able to even look at you guys without grieving deeply in my heart, you will not do this again. You will not cast your hand against one another. And if you do, there will be a reckoning and I will demand it. That for someone's blood, blood is owed. And even for animals, blood is owed. So the idea here being that God is like desperately trying to say to them, like, please don't bring me to that place again. Don't bring me to this place of sorrow and grief again. And then he says, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. That's his heart. That's his intent. That's his desire. His desire is for blessing, is for Create creative kind of uh, his creative purposes to be fulfilled, and then God said to Noah and his sons, uh, "Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth, with you. As many came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth." And, and then God says that the sign of this will be the rainbow in the sky. The idea being like, please don't bring me to this place again. Please don't do such evil again. But also, I promise, I promise my covenant, unconditional covenant. No, there's no conditions for, it's not like he says, you do this and then I won't destroy the No, no. He says, please don't do this again. But also... I promise with you and every living creature here and every living creature that will ever exist, um, I promise I will never do this again. And the rainbow will always serve as a reminder for that. It's a heavy story. It's a heavy story. I, like, there's no real way to like, um, say anything other than that God hates evil. God hates evil. He can't stand it. What is it in our lives that God might look at and like, be deeply grieved and sorrowful about what is it in our life that 
Jesus had to go to the cross and die for? What is it that literally killed God? What, what is it that, that, that wrought such destruction, wreaks such destruction in our lives, but also brings it out in the world and brings it out um, on the Son of God himself? Um, what is it that, that, that we do that's like this? Because we all do it, and God here is pleading with you. He says, regardless, the rainbow will be in the sky. Regardless, I promise. But, like, please don't. Please don't. And it's the same thing, uh, and again, we'll get to Jesus later, but it's the same thing with Jesus. You know, just because he died on the cross for you doesn't mean you go ahead and do more bloodshed and grieve God all over again. You know the cost. You saw the flood. You saw the destruction. You saw what it cost God. You saw what it cost the world for Noah. Don't do it again. You saw what it cost. So do all you can. Do all you can and rely and lean on God to help you avoid sinning so greatly against him and against the world to a point where his grief leads to judgment. Yeah? And we should do that for each other too. If you see someone around you who is kind of doing something so horrendous, so horrific, so destructive to either themselves or to another person, and you stay silent, that's why the book of Ezekiel says, their blood will be on your head. You could have stopped them from destruction. You could have stopped them from a path that would lead them off a cliff. And yet, you didn't. So, God takes this very seriously. It's very, very serious. Yeah? So there's no way coming around the, the flood other than just saying God hates evil. God's desire is not for evil, to, but his good will to flourish. And he will do what he needs to to correct it, to correct it. But he, his will and his heart and his intent is to not withdraw his face. His will and his heart and his intent is to always look on you with love and with grace and with goodness. Okay, how you going? You want to keep going or you want to stop there? Honestly, like we can stop here. Hands up if you want to stop. All right. So the rest of you, hands up if you want to go ahead. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. So the Exodus. All right. So what happens from here, as you all know, uh, um, God chooses Abraham and then chooses Isaac and then chooses uh, Jacob. And these are the forefathers um, of the nation of Israel. And God uh, promises, again, a covenant, makes an un- unconditional bond with this family. And he says that you guys, I will be with you. You guys, I will be there to bless you. You guys, I will give you a land of your own. You will be a great nation. Why? Because I want you to bless the world. I want you to bless and uh, bring about blessing for the whole world, right? Uh, same intent that he had for Adam and Eve and for all of us in the Garden of Eden. Same intent he had for Noah and his family. And now the intent is being passed towards Abraham and his descendants. So they uh, become quite prosperous. They go to the land of Egypt and then they're enslaved. And for 400 years, they are the slaves of Egyptians who worked them to the ground and uh, essentially they're outside of the Garden of Eden all over again and it's painful and it's suffering and it's awful. And uh, God sees this and he says, no, I'm not going to allow this. He sees the evil of the Egyptians, uh, that the Egyptians are literally trying to commit genocide. They are 
grabbing the young baby boys of, of, of the, the Israelites and they're throwing them into the Nile and they're killing them um, as soon as they're born or shortly after they're born. And God hates this uh, for many reasons. Number one, because it's just pure evil. But number two, these are the people that he's promised, unconditionally promised to bless. And this will not go unpunished. And yet it continues for 400 years. So, you know, like, again, they're heaping their guilt on, on themselves. They, God is literally, like, at any point in time, someone could come along and say, you know what, maybe genocide isn't a good idea. You know what, these guys, they're not too bad. Like, you know, we could get along with it. No, but guilt upon guilt upon guilt. Until it gets to a point where God delivers one of these baby boys from, from death. Um, from being thrown into the Nile. His name is Moses, and he chooses this guy, um, even though he's a murderer, even though he's a bit of a scumbag and, uh, you know, whatever. But he chooses this guy, and he says to him, um, you are going to be the one that I will deliver my people out from Egypt. I will rescue my people out from Egypt, and you're going to be the guy that will lead them out of Egypt. And um, then we hear the story of Moses going up before Pharaoh and the ten plagues hit right um, and each plague comes um, to break down Pharaoh so that eventually there will be there will be uh, deliverance and liberation and yet we have to ask ourselves a few questions at this point firstly of all um, uh, God talks about um, how he will harden Pharaoh's heart and this is something that gets a lot of people um, like questioning God and his heart. Why would you harden the heart of someone that you're trying to get them to re- release the Israelites? Like, just let him decide early. Let him, let him not harden his heart. And then that way, you know, release can happen earlier, hopefully, and, and judgment won't happen and plagues and people won't suffer and all this kind of stuff, right? So that's one thing. The other thing is, um, like, this is a whole nation, Right. Like, why, why not just judge Pharaoh? Why not just kind of like attack him or why the whole nation? And we're going to have a look together uh, at how God frames this in Exodus chapter six, verses two to eight. This is God speaking to Moses. He says, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God almighty. But, uh, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. He bookends his statement by saying at the beginning and at the end, I am the Lord. Who are we? Who are we to question the ways and, and the wheels of God? Again, he does not owe any of us anything. The fact that he's waited 400 years for things to change, potentially to change, uh, that, that, that's one way to look at it for sure. But he does not owe you an answer. And yet he still gives a bit of an answer. He tells us that the reason why I will do this thing is because I made a promise. 
I made a promise for the good of your ancestors and I intend to keep that promise. So in other words, God here is not saying, you know what, these Egyptians, they need to be put in their place. I'm going to really like give them a, you know, and <laughs> like, you know, you know, diabolical, whatever, Mr. Smithers pants. That's not what's going on here at all. In fact, it's the opposite. God is saying, no, I'm not letting this stand. I remember my promise. I will fulfill my promise. I will complete my promise. You, your people, you will be delivered. You will be set free because of what I will do. But also, God's judgment is never just purely uh, um, like just to teach someone a lesson or whatever else. It's largely, by and large, a lot of the time when God judges, it's to reveal sin. It's to reveal evil. It's to show it for what it is. Um, and that's exactly what he does in the 10 plagues. We're going to go through them. We're not going to read the passages. We're just going to go through them and we're going to talk about what they reveal. You ready? Okay. So Exodus, in Exodus chapter seven, we get the first plague, which is, uh, the water and particularly the Nile turning to blood. Now the Nile was the Egyptians life source. Like that's, that's what their economy, everything revolved around the Nile. If the Nile is undrinkable, unusable, if it's in drought or whatever else, like everything goes down the drain. But not only that, because the Egyptians knew that the Nile was a source of worship for them. In fact, there were several gods that were like intrinsic to the Nile. So uh, um, God strikes this Nile uh, and turns the the life-giving water into blood. Um, blood which you cannot drink, which will cause death if you drink of it. And not only does he do that, but it's also revealing what was going on literally 80 years earlier when Moses escaped um, his fate from from this uh, situation, which is that thousands of infants, babies, were thrown in this Nile, and God is revealing the bloodshed that is beneath the waters. And he's saying... This, this source of the thing that you praise and you worship and the thing that gives you life and that you feel so secure in and this thing that you use to create such evil out of, this thing I turn to blood. This thing, I make it a curse for you. This thing, it will poison you if you drink of it. So you, 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 you look at that and it stayed for seven days that way. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, now, Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh's heart. So God says, like, several times, that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Guess what? The end of this story, God doesn't harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and remained hard, says the Bible in, in, this, in this verse, in this judgment, in this plague. Uh, Exodus, bless you, Exodus chapter 8, the next plague, the second plague, frogs. So God, uh, the second judgment is that God makes a huge swarm of frogs come on the land. By the way, every time Moses is coming up and saying, hey, let, let God's people go or else here's the next plague or whatever else. There's only a few, like three times where God does not give any warning, but we won't go into that. Read it yourselves. Check it out. It's, it's very fascinating. and There's a lot to, to, to study and learn. But, um, but yeah. The idea here is that, uh, you know, every time God is like saying, hey, repent, like let my people go, etc., etc., giving a warning. And Pharaoh says, no. And so the frogs, frogs were a sacred, like they worshipped frogs in Egypt at the time. There was a goddess called Hechet, I think, uh, with the head of a frog. That was her face. Um, and God is like, this thing that you worship, this thing that you 
idolize, this thing will be a nuisance. This thing will be something that you'll be like, get it the hell away from me. I don't want it near me. And as soon as God relents, you know what happens to these frogs? They all die where they are um, uh, and they just rot and stink everywhere. So the idea is that God is saying, you want to worship frogs? All right, here are your frogs. They're just as mortal as you are. And here they are rotting away and creating this, uh, this nuisance and this, uh, this disgust for you. Uh, Exodus chapter 8 as well, you get the plague of gnats. Um, this is the third plague. So gnats being like a, like almost like a mosquito-y type of thing. Um, so this infestation that swarms the land um, and uh, particularly swarms the priests and, and all the people and all the animals, and it makes them all unclean. They can't do their sacrifices. They themselves are unclean because of these um, little mosquito-like creatures that are just plaguing them. And so God disrupts their uh, idolatry and their, their temple plague worship. And again, he's just peeling back the layers of, of evil and idolatry and all the things that he hates um, in this uh, with with the, the things that's wrong with his people. And still, every time, every plague so far, no mention of of uh, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Every single time, it's uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Uh, then in Exodus ch- uh, chapter 8 as well, um, you get the next plague, flies. So, infestation of flies. Uh, it seems more like it wasn't just flies. It looks like it was like, you know, maybe a different type of mosquito or something like that because they talk about like them biting and stuff like that. Anyway, they, they're further uncleanness. They're destroying crops and, and the, 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 the source of, um, of food for these people. And God's getting to the heart of their, their pride, really. Like their pride is that they're a wealthy. They're the superpower of the time. God's getting at the, po- uh, at the heart of you are going to be, you know, arrogant in your security or that somehow because you've got fertile land and, and you're the you know, most established nation in the world that, you know, I am not sovereign over you. That, that Pharaoh that you think you have a chance or a possibility to still be arrogant enough to, to kind of deny uh, to deny. God, well, there you go. Here's, here's your this infestation of flies, and it, in fact, this is the first time that we read that Pharaoh himself hardened his own heart, um, which we've assumed from the previous times. But this is it's explicitly said that Pharaoh hardens his heart, um, and uh, um, yeah, and this is also the first time that we actually explicitly get the mention that God spares Israel. So the other times we don't hear that God spared Israel. We can assume it, but we don't hear it. This is this time though, God spares Israel. In um, Exodus chapter nine, the fifth plague, the livestock is struck. There's this goddess called Hathor um, and she, her, her image is, is that of a cow. Uh, they were very into cows. Lots of cultures are still really into cows and think that they're like gods and stuff. So uh, Egyptians were that as well. Um, and so it strikes down this, uh, the cows these sacred creatures um, and, and the livestock in general. And uh, again, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, not God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Then we get the sixth plague and that's boils. This is the first time we actually get like direct plague on human beings. There's a God of Egypt called um, Imhotep and he's the God of medicine and of magic. And even his priests 
get covered in boils and they can't cure themselves. God destroys um, any semblance of their modern medicine or what they think is modern medicine and what they think they can um, save themselves from. Um, and this is now the first time we hear that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It took five plagues, five back-to-back plagues, pretty awful, pretty like significant. Like It's not like every day you see one plague after another like come into your country and then water just suddenly turn into blood. Like these are, these are not really ignorable things and they're one after the other. And it's only when we hit the sixth one does it say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Now, still, isn't that unfair? Maybe this was the chance that Pharaoh would have been like, whoa, okay, no deal. Like, all right, I'll let your people go. I don't like, I don't like boils. No, no. The point of this story is this, is that when you get to a place where you have hardened your heart enough times, there is a point of no return. There is a, a hinge point. That is what this story is trying to tell us, that there is a point of evil, there is a point of rebellion where you cross into, that's it, there's no hope for you. And this is exactly what's going on here for Pharaoh, it's the point of no return. So, uh, I'm going to wrap this up because we're an hour in and um, yeah, everyone is making a lot of noise. So, we keep reading on, then we get hail. Uh, we get locusts, we get darkness. Again, this is a picture of God withdrawing his presence. The darkness wasn't just pitch black. It's that no light would turn on. They couldn't light anything. And in fact, um, it was so dark that God says that the darkness is palpable. Like you could feel the darkness around you. Um, but in where the Israelites are, God's presence still is. There is still light. Um, and so anyway, so we get all these things until finally... The last plague in Exodus 11 and 12 uh, is the death, death of the firstborn. But you know what else is along with that plague? It's the first and most important uh, tradition that the Jewish people have, and that is their Passover. Because you see, with God's most severe judgment and punishment, um, with God's most severe judgment and punishment, um, he also provides a way out. Because you see, he is not the Egyptians. He is not the one that indiscriminately will kill the firstborn of every single Israelite Jewish person ever. No, no, no. God is the God who will just choose to to, uh, do it, but will allow you a way out. And he's doing it to reveal that same evil that that they committed in the first place. But he's also doing it with an opportunity, a chance for salvation, for um, being saved from this situation. And so... That's what happens. Uh, um, the people, and we know that there are some Egyptians who choose to um, uh, do the Passover and cover their doorposts with the blood of the lamb. And uh, yeah, God passes over them as well. And then finally, they are liberated. Finally, they're set free. But you know what? Pharaoh doesn't get the hint even after that. He's let them go. He's let them go. Um, and you know what he does after he's let them go? He pursues them. See, Pharaoh could have at least escaped this whole situation with at least his life. But such is his evil, such is his hatred, such is his rebellion towards God that it leads him to his own destruction where he drowns uh, in, in the sea that the people of God walk across. So what does this tell us about God's judgment? 
Well, it tells us a few things that, again, God hates evil and he won't let it stand. And particularly when he, when he makes a promise, when that promise is that, um, that he will work for the good of the people that he loves. Um, and when he sees those people being hated and, and, and hurt and harmed, but when he sees any evil occur, um, he will act. The other thing it tells us is that um, God wants to reveal, he doesn't just want to like meet, deal out like some like judgmental punishment and like make people like really like suffer in it cause. No, no, he's really, he, he wants to carry a message. He wants the Egyptians from then to the future to say that these gods are worthless, that this way of living is worthless, that this God of the Israelites, he dealt with us. And he dealt with us with such power that none of our gods could withstand. And that our way is wrong. That I've seen that because of how he's revealed it through these different judgments. And to turn away. And his judgments are always with warning. And his judgments are always with a way out. Because he does not delight in suffering. But he actually delights in when people decide to do the right thing. And that's where we'll end it today. But... There is a lot to go. There's the exile. There, there's there's obviously Jesus. There's the the book of the well, the last book of the Bible, the Revelation according to John, um, and there are many other stories in between. Um, and we'll see what we'll get to, and we'll see what we don't get to. But um, my encouragement to you is this: whenever you look at the Bible, whenever you particularly whenever you look at these acts of judgment and violence, particularly in the Old Testament, what I would hope we would see is first of all what i hope we would approach it with is what we just said at the start which is that i we we know who god is we know that he's not some tyrant not some bloodthirsty whatever but that he is god our father he is god who is creator and who has nothing but good intentions for us and for our world and our lives right the second thing would be to recognize who we are, to understand our identity and our part in this whole story, that we are not, we are not blameless, that we are far from blameless, that every human being uh, does not, we are not owed anything by God, and that any grace or goodness we receive from God is nothing but a gift. Um, but also to approach that by saying, Lord, I want to see your justice. I want to see your, your intent and your purpose behind this. And Lord, I don't want to make these mistakes. I don't want to perpetuate this cycle of sin that only leads to suffering and destruction, right? And what I do want is I want to be someone that actually does what you did, which is bring life uh, and bring healing and bring redemption and forgiveness um, and mercy. And we will get to that. But yeah, the, the, the story for today is God is just and God is, is, is merciful even in his acts of greatest judgment. And there are acts of great judgment because God will not put up with sin and with evil. And you know what? For the Israelites, for the Israelites who were the ones being subjugated and slaves, God's judgment was good news. For us who are called to follow God, God's judgment should be good news. 
It's not something we delight in because God does not delight in it either, but it should be good news because it brings liberation, because it brings the eradication of evil, because it brings the opportunity for a new way, the opportunity to learn to not repeat the same mistakes. And ultimately, ultimately, in the final day when it all comes to a head, it results in a brand new world with a brand new life, with a brand new mode of existence and a brand new heart to live completely in line and in love and relationship with our God who created us for that very purpose to begin with. Yeah? All right, let's pray.